We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. I am Leslie Vernick, and I am so excited about today's guest, Sheila Guiguar. We're going to be talking about her newest book, She Deserves Better. Sheila Ray Guiguar is the face behind BearMarriage.com. She's a sought-after speaker and award-winning author of nine books, including one of my favorite, The Great Sex Rescue. With her humorous, no-nonsense approach, Sheila is passionate about changing the evangelical conversation about sex and marriage to line up with kingdom principles. Sheila lives in Ontario, Canada with her husband, and they have two adult daughters and two grandbabies. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us, Sheila. I am so glad you're here. I loved your book, The Great Sex Rescue. How does she deserve better build on that research? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I love your audience too. And I, I, I think I refer so many people to you that probably a lot of your audience found you through me. So it's, it's, it's great um, to have you as a resource to recommend. Um, when we wrote The Great Sex Rescue, you know, we, we surveyed 20,000 women to find out if there are certain evangelical teachings or teachings common in the evangelical world that actually end up hurting marriage and sex. And that book was a lot of fun. It was hard hitting, but it was freeing. And so many women told us, I feel really validated. And I see Jesus in a whole new way, which is wonderful. But now I don't know what to do. Because I grew up with toxic teachings. I don't want to pass those on to my kids. But I also don't want to tell my 14 year old, go do whatever you want. So so how do we find what's healthy? And that's what we were trying to do with this is we, we surveyed another 7000 women. Um, to see if what what women heard as teens, what they experienced in church as teens, um, how they were taught about sex, and and see how those things affect us long term, so that we can do this better for the next generation. Yeah. So if you're a mom listening, get your pen and paper because <laughs> Sheila is going to give you a lot of helpful conversation starters with your teen child, and it might be a conversation starter even with your young man who is. Mm-hmm grown up in the same kind of misteaching that Sheila has found in the culture of evangelical teaching to our women and to our young man. You found, Sheila, that youth groups had a lot of landmines for girls of faith. What are some of those? And are they still present today? Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about purity culture. Um, And by that, I don't mean the idea that you should save sex for marriage. That's kind of been in Christianity forever, I think. Now, the definition of marriage has changed. Like, are you married when you're engaged? Do you need a ceremony? Those things are up for debate. But the idea that saving sex for marriage has always been there. Purity culture was something different. Um, what it did was it it started around the mid 90s um, until around maybe 2015. It's still there. It's just that the words have changed, I think. Um, but what it did is it brought some of the more conservative ideas into the mainstream. And it taught that for girls, especially your identity in Christ largely revolved around whether or not you were a virgin. So the way that you honored Christ was by staying a virgin. And that was basically it. So that was that was our main focus was on sex. And it really reduced girls faith to something which in many ways, she doesn't even have control over because you can be abused and you can be raped. And that's just horrific to think about, especially for, for women who are victims of sexual assault. Uh, and, and then it also said, you're not supposed to date except to get married. And so dating was off the table, kissing was off the table. 
Um, and girls needed to realize that boys have this insatiable sex drive. And so because they can't control it, hey, girls, you need to help out your brothers. You need to be there for the boys in your life and help them out so they don't sin. And so girls then ended up shouldering a lot of the responsibility for boys' bad behavior. I think that's so true even in today's culture, it may not be as strongly emphasized in the whole sexual arena, although it still is like, okay, what were you wearing? How did you lead him on? You know, why did you kiss him back? Those kind of things. But I think even with boys, bad behavior with anger, like what Mm -hmm. did you do that made him angry? Why weren't you more submissive? Why did you argue with him? Why didn't you just give in? And so therefore it's your fault that he lost his temper. That's your fault that he hit you. It's your fault that he is verbally aggressive because you just wouldn't stop. Yeah, that's actually explicitly taught in one of the biggest books during purity culture directed to girls. Um, It was called For Young Women Only. And it, it told girls that boys need unconditional respect, not just the boy you're dating, but every boy needs your unconditional respect. And if you're looking to figure out if you've crossed that disrespect line, you need to watch for anger. So if he's angry at you, it's because you've disrespected him. And the definition of disrespect isn't that you, I mean, I would say disrespect is you're treating someone as an object or you're treating someone Mm -hmm. with demeaning words or ways, but they define disrespect as disagreeing. Exactly. Yes. Because boys have this need to feel like they are in charge, like they are the boss, like they, like they are the most knowledgeable. And, uh, and so a lot of resources for teen girls went out of their way to tell girls, if you know more than a boy, you need to still stoke his ego. Remember that boys have the most fragile egos on the planet. Again, a quote from the same book. Um, and, and so we were responsible to stoke these boys' egos as opposed to telling girls, hey, you know, sometimes you just know more than a boy and that's okay. Yeah. And maybe if you know more than a boy, a boy could learn from you. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's interesting because everyone always says, you know, girls mature faster, but then why are boys not told, Hey, girls mature faster. So why don't you look to them, you know, for some leadership or for some advice? Yeah, that's so powerful. And that I think message still rings true, at least in the women that we work with, they're still afraid to question, challenge, argue with, disagree, because it's seen as disrespectful instead of seen as, hey, we're a partnership and I might bring things to the table that you never thought about, or I might bring strengths to the table. Two are stronger than one. Mm -hmm. And if God made us to be a team, do I not have a role in this team as a leader in this team? Or are you the only person who can make a decision and have an idea? I'm just supposed to be the implementer. Yeah. And that's such a toxic way of looking at it. And yet over and over again, this is what girls were told and still are told. And, and we're told even before we're married, you know, obviously this, this goes up to the nth degree once you're married, but girls are even primed as teenagers that men are the ones who are supposed to be in charge and that our voices shouldn't matter as much. And our voices are an inconvenience to the boys around us. So let's go back to dating for a minute for the moms who are kind of coming out of this purity culture and they're realizing that they had some wrong messages. And yet, what should we tell our daughters today that let's talk dating, no kissing before marriage? Mm-hmm. That, girls aren't doing that anymore, really. They're not. They're yeah. sneaking and you know everything but maybe sex. Um, Mm -hmm. what 
dating rules work best for the long term? In your research, what did you find? Mm -hmm. Well, this is kind of funny because it depends how you measure best. For years, the only metric that mattered was, is she a virgin on her wedding day? And if that is the only metric that anyone cares about, then telling girls not to date, not to kiss until marriage actually does work. But what if there's other things that matter? Um, Both of my daughters are married. And I can tell you that on their wedding day, I was not thinking about their virginity status. I was really thanking God that they were both marrying good guys who were not abusive. That was the big thing that I cared about. And so let's add some other metrics to the mix. Let's add future marital satisfaction. Are they going to have a good marriage that help that helps them feel good and loved? Are they going to have high self-esteem? Are they going to have good sexual satisfaction? What is their likelihood of marrying an abuser? Or what is the likelihood of getting married if they want to get married? Because unwanted singleness is difficult too. Um, you know, many people choose to stay single, but if you're single and you didn't want to be, that's something to mourn. And so if we expand our metrics to look at all of those things, I have something sad to tell you. There is no one way of doing dating that works for everything. There's mm-hmm. always trade-offs. But I can tell you the one that works the best for most. If you divide people up into four categories based on whether they were allowed to date and whether they did date. So you can have someone who's allowed to date and didn't date, allowed to date and did date, not allowed to date and did date, and not allowed to date and didn't date. So those are the four categories. The one that tends to work the best in terms of our outcomes is being allowed to date, but choosing not to. Wow. And that is something that you as a parent have no control over. Mm Mm-hmm. And and so, and and I think that's important for parents to realize is that you can't control your kids and you can't guarantee their outcomes. The only thing that you can do is stay involved, have a great relationship with them, keep the conversations going. Um, Because the best thing, girls who choose not to date, who deliberately choose not to date, tend to have very high self-esteem. So they're busy with part-time jobs, they're busy with theater or with sports or with studies, and they're looking around at the boys in their youth group and they're saying, I just can't be bothered right now. (laughs) And those girls tend to do quite well long term. Uh, But again, you can't guarantee it. So it's just it, it, as most things with parenting, it comes back to relationship, not rules. You know, I know that's so powerful, because when people feel like they have choices, they tend to make better choices. Mm -hmm. When they feel like they have no choices, that's when they get to be a little rebellious or sneaky because they're Mm -hmm. trying to exercise their freedom to choose. One of the things that you found in your research was that Christian resources don't talk about consent well. Mm -hmm. Talk some more about that. How can we teach our daughters to say no and not just no to intercourse, but Mm -hmm. no to anything they don't want to do? Yeah, so we found that 20, only 26% of women who took our survey said that they had a robust understanding of consent by the time they graduated high school. So that's really scary. And what does it mean to have a robust understanding of consent? It means that you don't believe date rape myths, things like he can't control himself. Or, um, you know, if you dress a certain way, you're, you're going to make him get out of control. Anything that says that you are responsible for making him get out of control is a, is a rape myth. 
And a lot of women believe those things. 68% of girls, of women said that as teenagers, they believed that boys can't stop in a makeout situation. And so it's a girl's responsibility to stop the progression. And this was, again, what was largely taught in our Christian resources over and over again um, in books like Every Young Woman's Battle for Young Women Only and The Bride Wore White. You know, we were explicitly told that boys can't help it. And so or they're going to explode. Yeah. And, and if you get them going, they can't stop. And so it's safest to not even start. That's just such a terrible, terrible message to give. Because we talked to so many girls who were victims of date rape and hadn't realized it for like a decade or two. Because while they had said no, they had also consented to making out. So they had, they had started making out. And so what they were saying to themselves was, what did I expect? And those are actually the words that are in every young woman's battle. You know, what did she expect being alone with him making out in the basement? And so if that's the message that we're given, girls don't realize necessarily that this was rape. Because if you did not say yes, <laughs> then, then you did not consent. And even getting aroused doesn't mean that you consented. And there, there are some disturbing stories um, that are in a lot of our books that are described as date rape situations, which are not date rape. One woman wrote about how he was forcing his attention attentions on her. He was doing things she didn't want him to do. Um, she had pushed him away. She felt like a deer in the headlights, but then her body responded and he awakened things in her and she lost her purity. But what she's explaining is a situation where she said, no, he forced her. The deer in the headlights is a classic freeze trauma response, mm -hmm. but then she got aroused. And so she thinks because I was aroused, I must've consented. But that's actually not true at all. It's called arousal non-concordance. And thank you to Law and Order Special Victims Unit for talking about this so much. <laughs> but, but, but you can become aroused. You can even orgasm during rape. It, in, in some ways, it can be even more common to do that because certain areas of the brain are lit up and you're, you have a much more heightened response. Um, but it doesn't mean that you consented. But it does mean you feel a ton of guilt and shame. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not only because you had sex, but because your body yeah. enjoyed but, it, a part of it. Yeah. yeah. Even though maybe your will or your spirit was scared or hated what was going on. Talk some more about this. You know, we had done some conversation about a teaching that you and your daughter do to counselors and people helpers, pastors around marital rape. Mm -hmm. And again, the same idea. I don't know if I've ever shared with you, uh, Sheila, this story, but I was teaching a class on domestic violence at Westminster Seminary, and I was talking about marital rape, and one of the D-Min students, so he's pastoring, he's training to be a pastor, he raises his hand, or not D-Min, MDiv student, raised his hand and said, I don't understand what you're saying. There is no such thing as marital rape. A woman's not allowed to say no. It says so in, mm -hmm. in you know, 1 Corinthians 7. And so it's like... Talk about this because mm -hmm. it drives people crazy because a lot of our women who are in abusive marriages are regularly raped. And if they aren't verbally giving consent, they're laying there like a rag doll 
mm-hmm. just allowing their bodies to be used in order to prevent other kinds of abuse of the children, a bad mood, whatever. Um, but it's not true intimacy. It's not sexual lovemaking. It's you use my body to have an orgasm and it's over. Yeah, let's let's go back to the definition of sex, because I think this is where people get me- get mixed up. When you look at 1 Corinthians 7, that passage about do not deprive each other, except mm-hmm. by mutual consent and for a time, what is it that we're not supposed to deprive each other of? Now, I think there's other issues with that passage. It was really talking about long-term celibacy. It wasn't talking about on an individual night, but it's often used to say, hey, you're not allowed to say no because you're not supposed to deprive. But what is it that we're not supposed to deprive each other of? And most people would say sex. When you ask what sex is, they would say, well, and they would describe something that has to do with intercourse, right? He does this, penis, vagina. That's what they, that's what they figure. That's not sex according to the Bible. Right. Now, Genesis 4 tells us that sex is a deep knowing, right? Adam knew his wife Eve. It's supposed to be intimate. Song of Solomon tells us that sex is pleasurable for both. She is writing more words than he is in that book, and she is enjoying herself. So sex is pleasurable for both. It is intimate. And from 1 Corinthians 7, we see that it's mutual. So intercourse where he orgasms and she feels used is not sex. And you cannot, like, how, how is she being deprived if they don't do that? She's actually being deprived if they do do that. Because she's being deprived of intimacy. She's being deprived of pleasure. She's being deprived of agency. She's being deprived of personhood. So if that is the sum total of your sex life, she is the one who's being deprived, not him. And her saying no to sex or her saying no to intercourse is not depriving him because they're already in a deprivation situation because they're not even having real sex. When it is not intimate, when she doesn't matter, when it is only about her, his orgasm, that's not sex to begin with. And so we've got to get the definition of sex right. In terms of consent in marriage, I would just say it this way, and and you you alluded to this as well. Anytime you have to do something to prevent something bad from happening, you know, whether it's his abuse of you, his abuse of the kids, his grumpiness. I've talked to women who say, I need to have sex before small group every week or else he embarrasses me in front of our friends. Or I have to have sex before we have family gatherings or else he will sit there and grumpy and embarrass me in front of my family. You know, so anytime you have to have sex, in order to placate him or get something or, or stop something bad from happening, then you are being coerced. And used. And used. And that isn't okay because that isn't sex. And so when people say there can be no marital rape, I mean, <laughs> I think it comes to a fundamental misunderstanding of what sex is. Intercourse alone is not sex. Well, and I also think it goes back to this fundamental teaching from certain people that a man's needs are more important than a woman's needs. Mm. A man's need for orgasm is powerful. And if he doesn't have an orgasm, he's going to die. Yes. And so, you know, if you're the wife and you're responsible for depriving him of his orgasms, then you are forcing him to do other things like go to porn or go to other women or masturbate Mm -hmm. or all those things that we don't want to force him. It's again, it's our burden. It's the same problem. It's our burden to make sure he's satisfied so that he doesn't cheat, so that he doesn't do other things that might be labeled as sinful. 
on an Instagram live once uh, a bunch of women were commenting about how they would rather give their husbands hand jobs while they're in the postpartum period, even though they hate it with every fiber of their being, because if they don't, they're afraid their husband's going to watch porn. And so after they've had a baby, when they're not supposed to be having intercourse at all, when you're not sleeping, when your milk is leaking, when your whole life is upside down, you feel like I need to give him a hand job because otherwise he's going to go masturbate and watch pornography. Right. Which still goes back to that belief that he can't control himself. It's my job to make sure he's satisfied because if Mm -hmm. he's not, he has absolutely no ability to control himself. And that is demeaning to a man. This is what I don't understand is it absolutely is, you know, people always, uh, or not always, but quite a few people accuse me of man bashing when I talk about how lust is not every man's battle and that men are very capable of self-control. And I'm like, how is that man bashing? I actually believe that men can show the fruit of the spirit of which self-control is one. I believe that men are capable of deep intimacy. I believe that men are not animals. Um, and that a man doesn't just need an orgasm. What he really wants is connection yes. in every way. And that men are capable of being very generous lovers. And I don't understand why that is seen as man bashing to just say that, hey, I expect a man not to act like a lizard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hi, friends. Julie Sedanko here with a very special invitation from Leslie. Your marriage may feel abusive, but he doesn't hit you. So is it really abuse? Mark your calendars for this Thursday, October 5th, because Leslie is going to answer that question. You'll get really clear on what exactly is abuse and what God has to say about it. This is a totally free live workshop, but you have to register to attend. So go to lesliefernick.com forward slash free training. You'll also have the opportunity to ask Leslie your questions live. Just remember to register at leslievernick.com forward slash free training. See you this Thursday. Let's get back to these girls because I think our women who are listening have daughters, but they also were girls during this purity culture. And a lot of these teachings impacted their self-esteem, not just in high school, but even now. But we hear a lot of talk about self-esteem being worldly, that that's not a good measure for good mental health. Is self-esteem a non-issue for Christians? I have my own ideas on this. I actually wrote a book on it, but tell us what you think. Aren't we supposed to find all of our worth in Christ or do we, are we allowed to have a little self-esteem too? Oh gosh, now I really want to re- read your book. I, I can tell you what the data says. So we, for our, for our survey, we used, um, it, it's called a previously validated question set. And by that, I mean, it's a set of questions that has been done on other surveys that has been found over and over again to, to correctly measure this thing that we are trying to measure, which we'll call self-esteem. And so many surveys have measured this and they found that if you rate highly on this scale, you're, you're going to have better relationships you're going to be more likely to keep a job. You're going to be less likely to be abused. You're going to be less likely to commit suicide. You're going to be more likely to have better mental health. Like it's good overall. There is absolutely no downside. I think what is bad is um, self-centeredness where you see yourself as the center of the world. Mm -hmm. But self-esteem is just living out what Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We matter. We matter because we're made in the image of God. 
and acknowledging that I matter, that God has a purpose for me, as he says in Ephesians 2.10, that he planned from before the foundation of the world and that God has given me gifts that I can use for his kingdom. That's a wonderful thing. And all of us need to know that. It doesn't mean that we're any more important than anyone else, but we are important and we do have a role to play. Absolutely. And that's what Paul tells us. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, Mm -hmm. but understand who you are. You are God's image bearer created for purpose with Mm -hmm. value. And when the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, and my soul knows that full well, Mm -hmm. that's self-esteem. That's saying, I know who I am. I am an image bearer. I am created with value for purpose by the creator God, regardless of what other people say about me. Yeah. And that's what we want our daughters to know. And that's what we need to know is that we are important. And yet there are a lot of things that we can go through as teenagers that can just take our self-esteem away. And I'm sure many of your, um, of your followers know those things on an individual level like abuse, growing up in a very dysfunctional family, one of your parents leaving, these things all affect self-esteem. What we measured though, wasn't these individual things that affect self-esteem, but more the systemic things that happen in the culture around us, including the culture of the church. And those things can hurt us, even if we don't realize it. And one of the biggest things that just wrecks a girl's self-esteem are modesty messages. And we, most of us heard these growing up, you know, you need to watch what you wear because boys can't help it. So we measured four different iterations of the modesty message. Boys are visual in a way the girls will never understand. A boy can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to incite it. A girl has a responsibility not to be a stumbling block to the boys around her. And a girl who is immodest is worse than a girl who is, um, who, who isn't. And all of those things have long-term effects on your self-esteem. It doesn't just ruin your self-esteem as teenagers. It affects you into adulthood. And when you believe as a teenager that you have a responsibility to stop a boy from lusting, you're 52% more likely to experience sexual pain as an adult. So that's one of the biggest reasons why evangelical women suffer from a much higher burden of sexual pain than the general population. You're also 68% more likely to marry an abuser. Wow. So it's a huge thing. And I think it stems back to the idea that when you tell a girl, your body, the way that you dress has the ability to make a man hurt you or be a threat to you, then it makes your body dangerous. You yourself are dangerous. So it makes us feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And not only that, there's something fundamentally wrong with the world out there because all the men around me, they're not capable of seeing me as a whole person. Even the nicest guys that I may meet, what I'm being told is he will still see me primarily as a sexual object. And this just primes girls to ignore red flags when dating because you'll be with a guy who's checking out other women and who watches porn and who makes crude comments and you won't realize oh, he's just a creep. You'll just think, oh, he's just a guy. And I can't expect any better because this is what the church told me. All men are like. Not only all men are like this, but all women are responsible for men's well-being and happiness. So if he's 
grumpy, I must have said something that hurts his feelings. If he's going to be sexually aggressive, oh, I'm wearing something too provocative. If he's irresponsible, oh, I didn't support and encourage his ego enough. So again, it hurts our sense of who we are because the truth is we're powerless to change another person. Yeah, We're powerless to make them do something or not do something. We certainly can advise people, we can influence them, but we're impotent. Even Jesus couldn't change Judas. Mm -hmm. Judas did what Judas was going to do. So I think we've put this burden on women that somehow if we're a good Christian woman, if we're really walking with the Lord, we have special powers that we actually don't have. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, And so then it makes us feel bad about ourselves because we're not successful. Yeah. Especially when it looks like other women are more successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they must love Jesus more. They must be doing this better. And what you're describing too is typical Darvo responses. Like it's all Darvo. So if he's mad at you, you must have done something. That's reversing victim and offender, right? Right. If he if he lusts after you, if he pushes your boundaries, if he date rapes you, well, what were you wearing? Again, you know that's reverse victim and offender. You made him get out of control. You were the one who actually hurt him by wearing what you were wearing because he would have been able to withstand this if not for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other red flags that you found that made women more vulnerable to marrying abusers? I think this is really important for our audience to listen to because they do have daughters and perhaps the daughters have seen, you know, the dysfunction in our own home. Uh, And so we want to make sure our daughters are noticing those red flags that maybe we didn't notice. And that if we're divorced and remarrying somebody that we Mm -hmm. also are noticing those red flags. Yeah. Um, There's a whole bunch of them, but let me, let me summarize some of them like this. One of the big disservices that we do to girls is we tell them the most important thing is to marry a Christian because there's a lot of guys who can quote Bible verses and who are on the worship team and who show up for church every Sunday who have terrible, terrible character and don't show any of Jesus at all. And so we need to teach beyond you need to marry a Christian because the idea that many girls have, and I certainly had this growing up. I mean, I'm amazed I married a good guy when I think of the things that I believed, like, thank you, Lord. But I, I really dodged a bullet there. But when we think that if someone is a Christian, they will automatically be good. Then we think if the relationship is bad, it must be my fault because he is a Christian. So what am I doing wrong? Right. I'm not loving him enough. I'm not encouraging Mm -hmm. him enough. I'm not praying for him enough. I'm not supporting him enough. It's still my responsibility. Yes. Make sure he behaves. Yeah. And so in, in She Deserves Better, we have a whole chapter on helping uh, girls recognize toxic people, recognize toxic systems, uh, toxic churches, so they don't stay. And a little, little piece of advice, make sure that your kids can disagree with you. If your kids can disagree with you, then they're going to feel like they can disagree with the person they're dating. They're going to speak up if they're in a toxic work environment. If they can't speak up with you, don't expect them to be able to speak up anywhere else. So make sure that you have the kind of relationship where your kids can disagree with you. That's really important. Um, But one one of the funny things that correlated with low self-esteem is the idea that girls talk too much. And this is, the, this is a, a rather interesting belief, a measure of something that's called internalized misogyny, which is when women ourselves believe that women are less than men. Okay, so when women believe that girls talk too much, when you believe that as a teenager, you're more likely to marry an abuser. 
you're more likely if you do get married to do way more of the housework than you should. Like it just, it's, it's a bad marriage overall. And if you believe it as an adult, it's, it also hurts you. So it's one of those beliefs that, that is harmful no matter what. But some people can argue, okay, but what if girls do talk too much? And that certainly is what was taught Brio magazine by focus on the family. Um, this was a common thread in many of the articles that we looked at. Uh, and for young women only, they quote a boy saying the girls talk too much. And uh, that's a big, that's a big point that the, that the authors elaborate on is how boys think girls talk too much. And we need to be careful of this. So the question is, do girls talk too much? Well, James Dobson seems to think so, because in a book that he wrote in 1983, he made a claim, um, I think it was that women speak 25,000 words a day and men only speak 14,000. And so ladies, when he gets home from work, he's already said all of his words, Remember that, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and you haven't even started. And so you're just going to want to talk at him, but you need to give him space. Gary Smalley repeated it. He changed the numbers, I think. Now it was 50,000 words a day versus 25,000 words. Luann Brizendine did 12,000 words versus 7,000 words. Like people kept repeating this claim that women speak roughly twice as much as men, but no one had any citations. And so researchers started to notice this because it was all, it was in all kinds of magazines. It was in Cosmo all. And so researchers were like, well, did anyone actually measure this? And so they started to measure it. And there's been meta-analyses done looking at all the different studies. And the conclusion is there is no statistical difference in the number of words that men and women speak in a day. We speak the same number. There is a difference, though, when you're in a mixed group. So when women are in a mixed group, let's say it's at work or in a church committee situation, you need to be 80% female before women say their fair share men will speak far more than their fair share. So it's not that women speak too much, it's that we don't speak enough. We don't speak enough. <clears throat> and we're afraid mm -hmm. sometimes to speak our words in a mixed audience because, again, the culture grooms us to believe, especially in the Christian culture, that our words aren't as important as a man's mm -hmm. words or that we are usurping their leadership yeah. or their authority or we're undermining their mm -hmm leadership and authority. And so submission means being quiet and staying under. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how much of the advice given to women focuses on being quiet. I mean, I don't know how many times Emerson Eggert in Love and Respect quotes the verse about win him without words and how you're never supposed to say a thing. <laughs> it's just, it's nuts. I don't know how you're supposed to resolve any conflict in marriage if you're not allowed to bring it up, but apparently you're not. Well, here's how we teach our women to do it. <laughs> Using that passage, we say, okay, when words don't work, consequences might. Mm -hmm. So here's where you win them without words is when you yes. stick them in jail, maybe they will. Yes, <laughs> there you realize, go. Oh my gosh, this abuse isn't, you know, legal yeah. and my wife isn't going to put up with it anymore. She said yes. it, she said it, she said it. I didn't hear her. I didn't hear her. I didn't hear her. Now the police have been called. I have, you know, night in jail. I'm not allowed to see my children. There's a protection order. Maybe that behavior by her finally putting her foot down and saying, mm -hmm. enough, you're not listening, I'm going to have to implement the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And don't we want our girls to never be in that situation? Yeah. And now, obviously, you cannot guarantee that they will not. But what you can do is you can keep a relationship close with them so that if they ever are in that situation, they can still come to you. And you can also help them to recognize red flags so it's less likely. You can never it, guarantee anything, but you can help make it less likely. I also heard the idea that, you know, make sure he's a Christian. 
And I think that's not a bad first step, but how do you know they're a Christian? Is it because they're in the worship team? It's because they read their Bible? No, I don't think I would be able to know someone's a Christian by that because I've met actually people who have been on the pulpit speaking Mm -hmm. alongside of me that I would never marry because Mm -hmm. I see their conduct. And so Jesus tells us our conduct, watch our fruit, look at our character. That will let you know whether someone is truly a follower of Jesus or they just are a good wordsmith. And um, I think listening to their conduct, listening to how they treat their parents, listening to how they treat the waitress at the at the store, listening to what happens when they're stuck in traffic and not necessarily how they treat you because they might treat you really well for a while, but how do they treat others when they're upset? What happens when they get upset? What happens when they run out of money? How do they handle stress? Those are the character qualities that you want to look at. And what happens when you disagree with them? Yes. Or when you, or when you want to do something different from what they want to do, how do they react to that? Yes. Yes. And that's why I love to teach your kids to disagree with you, teach them to do it in a respectful way but teach mm-hmm. them to think for themselves, to learn to have their own voice, to be able to express it. And sometimes, at least my children would argue with me and I would say, you know what? I think you're right. I know. My kids <laughs> talk me out of so many positions. It's like, yeah, okay, you got a point. Yep, yep. <laughs> Which increases their confidence mm-hmm. that they can make a difference, yeah. that their point of view does matter and that you are in a real relationship. But I think... One of the phenomenon that I've seen with a lot of women who are coming out of abusive relationships is that they were, they grew up in a very authoritarian world. So the pastor had power, the husband has power, you know, the parents have power and you recognize how toxic that is for you in your marriage and maybe even in your church. And so, you know, you leave the husband who has been toxic with you. But we don't necessarily realize that our parenting techniques are still modeled around the same things. Mm -hmm. And that's where the challenge comes is that sometimes when we recognize that in our marriage, there has been abuse, we also may need to realize that I have perpetuated some things with my kids that weren't healthy either. And I did it with good intentions. Mm -hmm. I did it because this is what I was taught I was supposed to do as a parent you know, but as you're trying to find your feet again now, or maybe for some of you who are still with your husband, but you're trying to find your voice at the same time, it's like, let's not perpetuate that with our kids. And let's learn to give our kids a voice too, because these systems can be there. They're not only in one place. Often they're there in several different areas of our lives. You know, you have grown children, I have grown children. And one of the things my grown children love to hear is true confessions of me. (laughs) As they like to see as they're navigating adulthood, that their mother isn't just a mother, but a real person. And I hope you've shown that to them growing up, but especially as they get older. And I think being able to say to your adult children, hey, I have a confession to make. I used to believe that it was my role to do everything for everybody. My role is just to be the good wife and to shut up and cooperate and please. And I don't believe that anymore. I see the damage it's done to me, to you, to our family. And so therefore, this is what I'm thinking now. And this is how I'm changing now. I think it's really helpful to give our children a heads up when we become when we become convicted of something different or we begin to learn something new, it gives them the opportunity to be open to learning and changing. And also as they see you start now doing some things differently, like setting boundaries, even with them or 
implementing mm -hmm. some no in your vocabulary where you never had it before. Giving mm -hmm. them a context for your change can be so helpful for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially too, one of the big changes that many people have to make is that they've parented their sons and their daughters differently. So often we have asked our daughters, especially our older daughters, to do a lot around the house. So they've taken on kind of the role of second mother to many smaller children. You know, they know how to make a meal. They know how to clean up. And our sons really haven't had to do that. And when we recognize that we've done that, it can be very difficult for our sons when we start saying, hey, you know, you need to know how to make a meal as well. And your sister is not here to serve you. Yeah. That that can be a big change. But that's mm -hmm. an important one. It's an important one for both our sons and daughters to see. Yeah. You researched over 27,000 women. Sheila, that's a lot of women. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you want to make sure that parents consider non-negotiable if they want to raise a healthy daughter? I think I think it's it's recognizing that, and we've already touched on this a bit. But you cannot control her and she does not exist to make you look good. She is her own person and you need to listen to her and let her have a voice. That our role is not to try to dictate to her what she should be doing. Our role is just to guide her and keep conversations open. And that means that you don't, this is actually good news because it means you don't need to be perfect. Yeah. You don't need to do everything right. If your life with your kid is really about a conversation, that it's a give and take. And I, I, I joke all the time with my girls about how much I messed up telling them about sex and puberty when they were, you know, eight to 12. I just was awkward. It was, it was odd. I did not do a stellar job, but we kept talking. And by the time they were 15, they were telling me all kinds of stuff yeah. and it wasn't as awkward, but it's not like I always did it right. And you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to put on an act. God really has equipped you to do this. You can do this with your kids, but keep the conversations going and don't love, ever stop talking. Yeah, I love that. And I think letting them know you make mistakes or you don't know everything, letting yourself learn from them and letting them see that they have impact on you and you have impact on them and you can even disagree and think about it and pray about it. all those kind of things are so important in any relationship but you yeah. teach your daughters what relationships look like by doing yeah. that. And you know, when we grow up in the evangelical world, our marriages and our kids, they're so much a part of our identity. This is how we judge ourselves, whether, we, whether we're living a good life or not, is how our marriages and how our kids are. When your marriage is blowing apart, then we can end up putting so much more emphasis on our kids. And just remember that your kids are not here to make you look good. Mm -hmm. You know, your kids are real people. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and they can be a lot of fun as they get older, as long as you keep the relationship in the proper perspective. I love my adult kids. My adult kids are awesome. <laughs> Mine are too. But we went through some moments and some seasons mm -hmm. of really rough times. And, yeah. you know, my daughter is experiencing that a little bit now as her kids are entering into adolescence. And I said, you know, you weren't an angel either. And look, you're a pretty cool person now. Okay, yeah. We'll get through this. It's going to yeah. be okay. Because it is so tempting as a woman to judge your worth on how good your kids are doing. And if they're not doing well, it's a heavy burden for many women that they carry. It's my fault. Yeah. And it's a heavy burden to put on your kids. Yeah. Because they sense that too.
Sheila, thank you so much. Where can our listeners go to connect with you and purchase a copy of She Deserves Better or The Great Sex Rescue? Yes. So they're available anywhere you buy books. Um, It's always fun. Just go to Amazon, type in anything, if she deserves better or great sex rescue and read the reviews, just start with the reviews because they're, they're wonderful, but you can find me at baremarriage.com. Um, my, all the links to our books are there, our courses, um, my social media is there. And of course our bear marriage podcast every Thursday. So baremarriage.com. Thank you so much. Would you be willing to pray for our moms who are listening? Yeah. Uh, just, I'm sure it stirred up some stuff for them, both yeah. sadness and maybe a little bit of regret or even anger. So just pray mm-hmm. that God would be with them in this moment that they can process that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, dear Lord, we thank you for kids and for our children and for these people that we love so desperately and so much. And that that love gives us a picture of how you must feel about us. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to think that you love us as much and even more than we love our own kids. And God, I know that many listening have been going through such turmoil in their marriages, and that's going to spill over into their relationship with their kids. And there's often so much fear, so much wondering, am I doing this right? Am I good enough? Can I handle this? Are my kids going to be okay? And I pray for peace for the moms, that they will know that you have their kids, whether they're still minors or whether they're adults, um, that you have them in your hands and that you love them as well. And I pray that you will bless our relationships with our kids, where there is repair that needs to be made, give us humility and the right words to apologize, where there are walls that need to be broken down, show us how we can show grace and how we can start building those relationships. And Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we do raise our kids, that we can steer them away from toxic people, that we can help them understand your heart, that it is for relationship and it's not for power and hierarchy. Um, And I pray that you will bless us in this journey as we try to be the best moms that we can be. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Just a quick reminder to register for Leslie's live free workshop coming up this Thursday, October 5th, where she's going to answer the question, if he doesn't hit you, is it abuse? The workshop is free. You just have to register for the noon or 7.30 Eastern time slot. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash free training. Again, that's leslievernick.com forward slash free training. Until next time. May God bless all of your relationships with him, with others, and with yourself.